This is the Pain Information Network. More on addiction. We're going to get through this. Today I'm going to start on co-occurring diseases, and we're going to see where this takes us. Um, co-occurring diseases are comorbidities is a big word that basically says we acknowledge the need for a unified treatment approach. It integrates treatment most effective, underline the word most, and it assumes that each disorder is primary and in need of some type of care. All right, so we're going to look at the older way from the DSM-4 to the newer way DSM-5. This is a big book that uh, characterizes a lot of um, psychiatric disease states goes through access and that's axis and it defines where people fall and how we categorize them because once once again we got to go back to rule two you got to have a diagnosis dsm-4 looks at alcohol and use disorders including opioid use disorders as distinct disorders and abuse and dependence is there they also have specific criteria. Now, DSM-5, the new criteria, integrates both disorders into a single use, particularly with alcohol. So there's mild, moderate, severe, and it eliminates this legal issue. Uh, one of the categories that uh, were considered specific criteria was people that have opioid use disorders also have legal problems, and that's not necessarily true. They usually have lack of treatment problems. Okay, I'm going to put some uh, links to alcohol use disorders identification testing. That's called audit and misuse screening behaviors um, and this thing called screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment, ESPERT, that bizarre acronym. And it's from uh, SAMHSA. We call it SAMHSA. It's really S-A-M-H-S-A dot gov, and that's forward slash Espert, if you wanted to look that up. It's how we brief interview people and look at risk and harms. Okay, the modified cage test for all addictions. This is, this is what you can apply to yourself, your loved ones, acquaintances, patients, um, basically anybody you think that has a problem. Have you ever thought you should see cut down your drug or alcohol use? Have you ever felt, A, annoyed when people have commented on your use? Have you ever felt, G, guilty or badly about your use? Have you ever used drugs to, E, ease withdrawal symptoms or avoid feelings of uh, this kind of low, this crash after using, and the cravings? I'm going to throw cravings in there. All right. One point for each answer, yes. All right, one point. You think that's much to worry about? 75% chance you're addicted to drugs or alcohol. Two. Two. You score two. 85%. Three. Home run, 99%. So three of these, there's a correlation to 99% chance you're addicted to drugs or alcohol. Four. There's a 100% chance. <laughs> There's never a 100% chance of anything in medicine, but let's make it 99.9. I briefly mentioned audit test for alcohol, alcohol use disorders identification test. And it was de- developed by the World Health Organization. That's called WHO. <laughs> Go figure. 
Answer a series of 10 questions, and you add up the score. It correctly classifies with this very high confidence level, 95% of people into either alcoholics or non-alcoholics. And I also use it, opioid uh, use disorders with some modifications. So more statistics. Let's, let's shake the cage. From 1999 to 2014, more than 165,000 people died from overdose to opioid pain medications in the United States. And 20% of Americans probably have some type of alcohol problem in their adult years. In 2012, healthcare providers wrote 260 million prescriptions for opioids. That's enough for every adult in the United States to have a bottle of pills. So availability is out there. It's going to be there. So it increased uh, it, close to 10% from 2007 to 2012 when we knew we had a problem. All right, so now let's look at some evidence-based practice um, techniques that we can identify, reduce, and prevent problematic use, abuse, dependence on alcohol and illicit drugs. Screening. Brief Intervention Referral to Treatment, SBIRT. So what we do is we try to find these stages of change. You enter this spinning wheel, pre-contemplation. You don't really know you have a problem. Contemplation, I might have a problem. Determination, I want to do something about it that leads to action. And I talked yesterday, day before, about relapse. Expect relapse, not a moral failure, and then maintenance. We try to get people in maintenance, buprenorphines, naltrexones, and the like. You can exit and re-enter at basically any stage. So heroin. Heroin is a big euphoric high. Somebody once told me it's a front row seat. But when you mix it with fentanyl, which is 80 to 100 times more potent than morphine, that acts fast, it increasingly can cut the heroin but it's a deadly combination they're adding this fentanyl to heroin because it creates an intense high and there's been a thousand deaths were caused by fentanyl heroin overdoses in just two years that they know of 2005 to 2007 it's much higher right now and that's from the dea all right we all as providers uh, can do a better job of this thing called a motivational interviewing we put our personal feelings aside, our personal pre- prejudices aside, and we look at a patient-centered, direct method that enhances motivation, this intrinsic motivation to change. And look, explore other things. Resolve your ambivalence, this pre-contemplation. Resolve it. Get it out of your life. It's centered on the patient's perspective as well as the patient's interest, values, and concerns. So you've got to get into those kind of questions, and that's a real skill. This motivational interviewing is something very difficult to learn. And if you don't see patients with addictions or substance use disorder often, you find yourself reflecting your own personal bias into your interviewing instead of motivating so I'm going to round out uh, this podcast today. It's, it's brief by design so that we can get to the real problem of overdoses and what we can do with them and then dive into Suboxone, what we do with pregnancy and epidemiology of all this. 
the approach that we take to family members, to patients, and uh, just the community in general, either from a faith-based or uh, otherwise a community-based program, is we have to be pulling ourselves back, getting our personality out of talking to a person that has an addiction because they aren't going to think like you and me in, in, into the throes of addiction. They may be hitting rock bottom, and this rock bottom is someplace that maybe you and I have never experienced, so how can we relate to it? But we can relate to motivational discussions. We've all been in a room with a motivational individual. It makes us feel good. It makes us want to please. It makes us want to say, yeah, I can do this. I can do this for you. I can do it for me. More importantly, we reflect that motivation onto the individual that's having this problem and saying, look, it's for you. I'm here to help you help yourself to find it within you and with you know overdoses of pharmaceuticals uh, that around 19,000 a year resulting in death as just the tip of the iceberg he doesn't even show the ER visits doesn't even show ICU visits Um, we have seen an enormous need for people to understand these skills, to learn how to talk to people, to learn how to understand them and bring ourselves down. It's easy to be lofty. It's hard to be compassionate in the throes of, uh, of somebody before you that thinks you might even be the enemy. You're taking away my drugs. No, we're going to work through this. All right. So thanks. Leave a review at iTunes, please. Uh, any other questions, uh, Leave those at paininformation.com, and I responded to this today because uh, a an individual who was reaching out for help was somewhat shut down by the old school, and that is not motivational. That is not something that's going to get this individual help. That's somebody that's going to be pushed out into the realms of society they don't need to be. So uh, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.